Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Please navigate to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be spending another week in the first portion of that chapter. And as you turn there, I would like to pause for a word of prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this opportunity we have to sit before it in a focused way. And Father, I just pray that you would uh, clear out any distractions in our heart and our mind. And Lord, I, I pray that you would tune our hearts uh, to, to listen and to, to hear with an open heart, Lord, uh, what it is you might have to say to us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, this is our second week now in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And we really are going to be picking up here right in the middle of the passage this week. And if you happen to miss last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go on our website and uh, find part one of this message and uh, kind of catch, catch back up. Uh, but we've been talking about how justification by faith alone is really only the beginning. Right, so we've spent a, a good chunk now of Romans, the first three chapters talking about our need for justification because of the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then in, in the second half of chapter three and in, in Romans chapter four, we were talking about justification by faith alone and how, how somebody can go from being ungodly and deserving of the wrath of God to standing before him declared righteous. And now here in, in Romans chapter 5, Paul sort of turns a corner from this heavy argumentation about our need for justification, and he just sort of steps back and exalts in the benefits of our justification. He rehearses some, some of these benefits. He says here, right here in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's the foundation of our salvation, and it's something that he is saying that he has already established in this letter, right? How someone goes from being ungodly to being declared righteous. You can't just assume that the benefits we're going to be talking about apply to you. Right? You must be justified. You must be declared righteous before God for these benefits that we're talking about today to apply to you. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, verse 1, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. We talked about how this means not just uh, a, a subjective feeling of peace, but more of an objective uh, being at peace with God. We are no longer in, at hostility with him. Right? We are at peace with him. God is for us and not against us. And then secondly, we have access to grace. Whereas before you could say we were in the realm of God's wrath because of our sin, we are now 
in, in the realm of God's grace. We stand in it before him. Thirdly, we exalt in our hope. And Paul really illust- or highlights here two different aspects of hope. He talks about hope for the future as we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Right? We have a bright and shining future before us and we're looking forward to being in glory with him. And, but also, we, we looked at how there is hope for the present in our current sufferings, in, in our circumstance. Right? What, what does he say here? He says in verse uh, 3 and 4, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So there is a hope that arises out of our sufferings. We might expect Paul to say to us, you know, just grind it out through the sufferings because you have heaven ahead of you. But he says not only that, he says we exalt in our sufferings because God is doing something in and through it. He's developing in us perseverance, endurance. He's developing in us godly character. And out of that, we, we have this inexplicable hope that arises that we say, wow, look, God is doing something in my life in this difficulty. Well, Paul continues here in verse 5, and this is where we left off last week. He continues by saying, And hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. When Paul says this, when he says hope doesn't put us to shame, he's talking about a sense of assurance that we can have that your hope in the Lord Jesus is not going to let you down. Right? Shame here, when, when the Bible speaks of shame, it's something deeper than embarrassment. We often think of, of being embarrassed when we think about shame. We're not talking about our hope in the Lord Jesus causing us to be embarrassed. Right? We're talking about, is, is my hope in the Lord Jesus Christ going to let me down? Is it going to cause me to be put to shame? It's always a, a fun icebreaker question in a small group to ask, what is your most embarrassing moment? Right? <laughs> that really breaks the ice and help, helps you to get to know somebody, right? Well, my most embarrassing moment, I think I've shared this from the pulpit before, but my most embarrassing moment um, it, I, that I always tell in those, those situations is when, from back when I was in high school, uh, living in Germany, my dad was stationed overseas, and um, the, the U.S. Army chapel there where we worshipped week in and week out, they, they put me in charge of the sound system, just a high school kid, right? And unlike our sound system being nice and tucked away up in, up in a booth upstairs, the sound system was out in the congregation about three quarters of the way back on the right-hand side. So my family would sit there with me every week as I ran the sound system for this U.S. Army chapel. Well, uh, one Christmas Eve, I was running the sound for, for a packed-out room. I mean, you know, it's kind of one of those things where at Christmas time, you know, everybody comes to church. Well, it was one of those things. It was a packed-out room, Christmas Eve service. I'm running the sound. The soloist stands up to sing, and as she opens up her mouth to let out her beautiful soprano, out came a, a, a wonderful, deep, hearty bass instead. It was the, the tape that I had put in there as was supposed to be an accompaniment track, 
but it was a demo track with the, with the actual artists still singing, right? So I pushed play, and out she opens up her mouth, and out comes this man's voice, right? And so everybody, I, I mean, I can still see it in my mind. In my mind, the entire army base turned around and looked at me, right? And my face was just beat red. And it was back in the days of tape, so I had to fast forward, push play, fast forward, push play till I found the right one. It was so embarrassing. But I'll tell you what, as, as embarrassing as that was, after a few months and a little bit of counseling, I got over it. I'm just kidding about the counseling part. I can laugh about it now, right? I can share it uh, out in the open. When the Bible speaks of shame, it's speaking of something deeper than, than just mere embarrassment, right? Paul is saying, your hope in the Lord Jesus is not going to, to put you to shame in the sense of being crushed, Right? Entrusting your soul to someone for your eternal salvation is, is not a light matter. That is a, a heavy thing. Another illustration might be, you know, if you're stood up for a date, you might be embarrassed. But if you're left standing at the altar, you'd be put to shame. When you'd be crushed by that. All your hopes were wrapped up in someone else and they let you down. Well, as Christians, we not only experience the normal sufferings of life, but we also experience the unique sufferings of being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, do we not? And not only that, we have a, a hidden spiritual battle be, that's being waged behind the scenes that we are now on the wrong side of for this world. Right? We have an enemy, we have an accuser. Satan, the great accuser, will taunt you as a Christian. He will accuse you of all sorts of things. He will, he will throw things at you and say, why are you trusting in the Lord? Right? That hope is going to put you to shame. Look at what the Lord is doing to you right now. He doesn't love you. Those are the sorts of things that go on beyond the beyond the. the the, the surface in the life of every Christian, right? As we go through trials, maybe you're going through a trial right now and the evil one comes along and tempts you and says, what about that hope you have in God? If God loved you, he wouldn't allow that in your life. But Paul tells us here that our hope in Jesus will not put us to shame. Even with this added layer of suffering of being a Christian in a hostile spiritual environment, Paul says that we exalt in our sufferings because they produce hope. How do we know that this hope is not just, not just wishful thinking? How do we know that it's not self-deception? You know, we have an incredible ability to, to self-deceive ourselves, don't we? How do we know that the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus isn't just wishful thinking? Even non-believers can show remarkable hope through times of suffering. But you see, our hope isn't just any hope. It's not just wishful thinking. It's in the Lord. And what assurance do we have here, Paul? Look, look at the assurance that Paul lists himself here in verse 5. This is our anchor here, verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
we have assurance in his love. We have assurance in his love. And Paul, in this, in these next few verses here, is going to point to God's love in a subjective way and in an objective way. What I mean by that is subject, something that's subjective is based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, and opinions. Right? But something that's objective is in the realm of facts, regardless of how you feel about it. Right? So objectively, I can say it's going to be a hot day today. Right? The, the forecast is for it to be 93 degrees. It's going to be a hot day. That's an objective fact. Right? What's subjective is how I feel about it. Right? You might say, hey, I really love hot and humid weather. Can't wait to get out in it. Others of you might subjectively say, well, I don't like hot, humid weather. I'm, I'm going to stay inside in the air conditioning. Well, we have assurance of our hope, and Paul puts um, points to both the subjective experience of what we have of being loved by God already, the, the feeling that we have in our heart, and then he's also going to point to the objective fact of God's love that's observable in history. We're going to take these one at a time. First, the subjective aspect of God's love. We already feel loved by God in our hearts, don't we? The agape love of God has already been poured out into our hearts. That's a perfect passive verb, meaning it's, Paul is speaking of a past action that's completed that has ongoing effects into the present. It has been poured out into our hearts. As believers, we're not only hoping in a love that we do not our, that, that we haven't already tasted. No, God's love has already been poured into our hearts. You know, there, there's nothing quite like hands-on knowledge of something. In fact, it, it's one of the disadvantages to having to buy something online, right? You go to look at it online, you can see the pictures of it, you can read the specs of it, but man, you just long to be able to pick it up and feel it and turn it around and, and look at it every which way. And, and so as an effort to replace that hands-on first-person knowledge, we, we rely on the hands-on knowledge of people who have already purchased that product, right? Through customer reviews, we try to find products that receive a high number of five-star ratings. And, and if there's enough people out there who have already bought the product and are satisfied with it, then, then we decide it's, it's worthy of giving it a try. But Paul's not suggesting that we have to rely here on some kind of secondhand knowledge of God's love. It's not as if we just read about God's love in his word. It's not as if we just hear about it from somebody else. No, we have firsthand knowledge of the love of God. We can testify to that subjective feeling of, I have been loved by God. Paul says that this kind of love has been poured out in our hearts. Christopher Ash says that the word here, poured out, suggests a generous abundance. I'm not talking about sprinkling, a little sprinkling of love. Like you would sprinkle a little salt over your food. I'm talking about something that's been poured out into our hearts. 
talking about generous abundance here. I love the way the NIV translates 1 John 3.1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We haven't just been sprinkled with God's love. It's been poured out on us. It's been lavished upon us. We are called the children of God. See, the, the reason that, that this isn't just a sprinkling here, I think, is the connection between this subjective feeling of love that Paul's talking about and, and the Holy Spirit. Notice that the text says that the love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's another perfect passive verb there. The Holy Spirit has been given to us in the past and has ongoing effects in the present. He was given to us and we still have him. God's love is not just a feeling of affection. It is that. It is a feeling of affection. But it's more than that. It's the the presence of God himself in our hearts. God, who is love, has taken up residence in our hearts. He overflows our hearts with himself, with his love. And we experience that love in a very real way right here, right now in this life. So I don't picture this as God somehow standing outside of us, pouring something, some kind of feeling into us. No, we're, what we're speaking of here is God actually pouring himself into us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Look, Paul says a very similar thing in a different context. In Titus 3, 4 through 6, Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See the connection between the love poured into our hearts and the Holy Spirit who's been poured out This language of God pouring out the Holy Spirit is connected to the Old Testament. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, the prophet foretold the the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the, the Spirit being poured out into our hearts. The Lord says through him, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. We've experienced that. We are the fulfillment of that as God has, has graciously given us himself in, in the Holy Spirit. So some might say, well, how, how do you know you have the Spirit? How do I know I have the Holy Spirit within me? Well, Paul's going to talk more about that in Romans chapter 8 in particular. But for now, I, I, I think I would just simply answer that in two ways. I would answer it with my head and with my heart. Right? With my head, I can tell you I have the Holy Spirit because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me that when I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within me. So by faith, I believe that the Holy Spirit is indwelling me. Right? With my head, I can tell you that. But the Bible tells me so. But also with my heart, my heart confirms this truth that I read in the Scriptures that the Spirit is inside of me. All I can tell you is that there was a time in my life 
when God wasn't just out there, but he was in here. Maybe you can point to a time in your life as well where you, you came to know that God was in you through the Holy Spirit, filling your heart, taking up residence within you. Paul uses this kind of language here. He calls the Spirit of God the Spirit of Adoption. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Right? It's, you, you might look at that and say, well, that's a subjective thing. You're saying that the spirit, the hidden spirit, invisible spirit inside your heart is confirming to your heart that you are a child of God. And I'm saying, yes, yes, that's true. There is a subjective experience that we all testify to individually that God's spirit is within us testifying that God loves me and that he is with me. And that is significant. It's not to be discounted. In fact, the filling of the Holy Spirit is everything, so much so that Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 17, that it was actually to their advantage that Jesus went away, that he went back up into heaven because when he left, he could then send them the Holy Spirit. That's how significant the coming of the Holy Spirit into your life is. Jesus said, it's, look, it's better for, for you you, you think it's great having me here walk beside you, but there's something better than having me walk beside you. And that's having the Holy Spirit in you. He doesn't leave us as orphans. He gives us the spirit of adoption. Ephesians 1.13, Paul speaks of the spirit as the seal and guarantee of our inheritance. The spirit in our hearts is the down payment, if you will. As you sense him within you, it's the down payment. It's the, the first taste of things to come. It's the appetizer, if you will. And so the love of God is not something we hope to experience only one day in the sweet by and by. No, it is a reality in the heart of every true believer right here, right now. And so our hope is full of assurance that we will not be put to shame. Now, that's the subjective love that, that, that I, I was indicating. But secondly here, Paul goes on to talk more about the objective demonstration of God's love in history at the cross. Let me tell you, there's, there's so much I could say here in these verses of Romans chapter 5, verses 6, six through 10. I'm going to limit myself to three things here, okay? You can hold me to that. First one here, God's love was displayed in history. It was displayed in history. You know, as Christians, we don't merely rely upon the subjective experience of, of God's love. It's, it's possible we could be deceived by what we, we sense within we don't merely rely on statements like God loves me and let me tell you how much I can feel it. No, God's love is not just in our hearts but also in the pages of history. God loved you and me at a definite moment in history. You can circle it on your calendar. Right? 
Verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, at the right time, God entered into time. Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4.44, I'm sorry, Galatians 4 verses 4 through 5 tells us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. So as Christians, our hope is not just subjective and invisible. It is also visible and historical. And this is another reason why our hope in him is not just wishful thinking, but it also lines up with the witness of God's love in in history. I think I would encourage you this morning to not just base your faith solely on, on the subjective end of things, but also to explore the the more objective, factual end of things, to explore history, to see the evidence of how God has loved you. I think in doing so, that will not only bolster your own hopes, but it also give you something to declare and to share with somebody else. It's an important part of our declaration that God loved you in history. You can say to people, come consider the definite record of his love. Australian Christian apologist and historian John Dixon says in his new book, Is Jesus History? He says, Christianity is unlike other religions in that it gambles its plausibility on supposed historical events. He says, people notice when you shift from saying, I believe God loves you, to, I believe Jesus died under the fifth governor of Judea. First one is something they can't test, but as soon as you say Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, we've taken a step into the real world, and thoughtful friends who don't believe are going to say, how do you know that? It's part of our proclamation. God's love is, was demonstrated in history. Secondly, God's love was displayed when we least deserved it. The emphasis of this whole paragraph here, verses 6 through 10 and 11, the whole emphasis here centers on this point that God's act of love was not done for us because we are lovable. It's not done for us because we were attractive in some way to him. Paul describes us here throughout the passage as being still weak. By that we presume he means still weakened by sin. He calls us ungodly, still sinners. He even calls us enemies in verse 10, enemies of God. Really the the crux of the argument here is found in in verses 7 and 8 where Paul says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, people will often commit great acts of self-sacrifice for for someone that's dear to them. A parent or a friend may push you out of the way at the last moment and, you know, allow themselves to be hit by, by the oncoming truck instead of, you, right? That kind of thing happens. A brother at arms might take a bullet for you in combat. Perhaps an older person might 
decide it's worth laying down his or her life for a younger person, concluding that they've largely lived their life. But God loved us when not only we were unworthy of his love, but he loved us when we were worthy of his wrath. Picture laying down your life for your worst, most hateful enemy. Picture giving up your own child's life so that perverts and murderers and drunkards and liars and deceivers like us could go free. Picture that as a a gap between someone who is worthy and someone who is unworthy. And when, when we picture possibly laying our lives down for someone unworthy in, uh, in the human realm, we, we picture a gap there. Now, when you, when you picture the gap between God and human beings, and men and women, boys and girls, you got to widen that gap, don't you? I mean, picture the, the, if you consider yourself to be an upstanding, good person, and picture yourself maybe laying your life down for someone unworthy that, that might f- be your worst enemy or someone vile in some way, and, y- and you picture that gap. You've got to widen that gap when you think about God. God, in his infinite worthiness, loved and sacrificed him who is supremely worthy for us, his bitter enemies. I love pointing out examples of sacrificial love to my family. If we're watching a movie or or reading a book or watching the news and there's an example of sacrificial love, I love to point to that and say, hey, that reminds me of Jesus, right? But almost without fail, I always have to qualify it by saying, it reminds me of Jesus, but Jesus' sacrifice was so much more because that guy laid down his life for his bride who he loved. She was lovely. She was beautiful. But Jesus laid down his life for his bride who was basically a woman of the street. Right? Jesus didn't lay down, or, or, you know, we, we may see a movie where someone lays down his life for a loyal friend or a close brother, but Jesus didn't lay his life down for someone who was friendly to him. He laid his life down for a bitter enemy. He didn't lay his life down for his precious child. No, God gave his precious son on behalf of those who shake their fist to him. So God's love was displayed for us when we least deserved it. Thirdly, we can only conclude how much more will he keep on loving us. If he loved us, right, when we were so unworthy, how much more will he keep on loving us? I love how Paul takes this logic a step further here. He basically reasons that if God loved us this way when we were at our worst, estranged from him, regarded as an enemy, how much more will he continue to love us and save us now that we are reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ? Look at verses 9 and 10 here where Paul uses this kind of much more language. He says, Since therefore... Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him 
by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What a great hope this is for us weary sinners, right? We're constantly, I think, in, in our relationships, even on the, at the human level, we're constantly trying to put our best foot forward, right? And we've, we've all experienced how over time our, our less lovable parts, aspects of our personality come to the surface, right? And we always worry, man, if somebody really sees who I am, if they really come to know these less lovable parts of me, are they going to reject me? It's happened to us all. It's happened to us many times. And we've probably even rejected others when we really got to know them. But what an assurance to know that God knew you at your worst and he loved you anyway. how much more so will he continue to love you now after he's already reconciled you through the sacrifice of his beloved son? This is, is the assurance of our hope that we have in him. You know, a, a number of years ago, I, I read this leadership book called Eat That Frog by a guy named Brian Tracy. And the premise of the book was that oftentimes the, the most important thing on our to-do list is often the hardest thing for us to do, and, and the thought of doing it is unpalatable to us. It's almost like eating a big, ugly frog. So the, the manifesto of this book is that you should, without much thought, just eat that frog as the first order of business in every day as an idea of, of being more productive in your life. I thought of that as I was reading this passage this week because Paul is essentially arguing here that, hey, look, God has already eaten that frog. He's already done the hard thing on his to-do list of promises to you. He's already done the hard thing of sending his own son into the world, causing him uh, untold suffering and shame on your behalf. He's already done that hard thing of turning his back on his own son and pouring out his wrath on his son. How much more so will he now continue to love you through the life of his son whom he raised from the dead on your behalf? God has already eaten that frog. He's already done the hard thing first. How much more so will he bring you all the way home to glory? And this, my friends, is why our exulting in hope through suffering is not just well-wishing. It is completely reasonable based upon the subjective experience of your own heart as the Holy Spirit has been poured out in your heart and you experience that adopted love of God in your heart. And then as you look out in history and you look back in time and you see at a definite moment in time, God sacrificed his own son for me as an objective historical fact i know that god has already done the hard thing we put these things together and we can almost float with hope fifthly and lastly here paul 
exalts in one more thing in verse 11. He exalts in God himself. Look at verse 11. Paul says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as wonderful as all the benefits of our salvation are that we've been talking about, peace and hope and joy and assurance, all of that pales in comparison to actually exalting in and enjoying and delighting in God himself. All true believers delight in him. Your heart thrills at the thought of being with him and talking to him and knowing him. I would say it's a warning sign in your heart if all you care about is the benefits of what God can give you, that he might give you more success in life, that he might, might somehow give you greater health or, or might advance your agenda in some way. Right, we don't want to view God as a free meal ticket like they, they did in the Gospels when they came to Jesus and Jesus multiplied the bread and the fishes. They got a free meal. And then the next day as Jesus had kind of slipped away from them across the, the lake, they came around, they found him again, and what did they want? They wanted another free meal. They, they, they didn't care about the bread of life, Jesus Christ. They wanted the bread for their stomach. They wanted the benefits that Jesus could offer them. They didn't care about Jesus. Right, we don't want to be like that. We want to we exalt in God himself. We want to exalt in who God is. We don't want to just view God as a get-out-of-hell-free card. Pastor Tony Morita said it this way. He said, we don't just see God as useful, we see him as beautiful. This is why the Psalms say things like, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The ultimate prize is the Lord himself. So to be justified by faith is is really just the beginning, my friends. It's just the beginning. We have peace with God and through that we experience the peace of God. We have access to amazing grace. We have hope, hope that floats, (laughs) hope for the future, hope for our sufferings, hope that is assured by God's love. And we have God himself. So after hearing the the benefits of being justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ, I just want to ask you one simple question for those of you who maybe have, have never entrusted your life to the Lord and, and sought to repent of your sins and believe in Him and be saved, why wouldn't you want to come to Him? Why wouldn't you want to know this kind of peace? Why wouldn't you want to know this kind of joy? Why wouldn't you want to know this kind of hope and assurance and love? But more than that, why wouldn't you want to know God Himself? Not just out there, but in here. He bids you to come. He bids you to trust in him for your salvation today. John six thirty seven 
says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray.